It is good to worship the Lord together, isn't it? Don't you look forward to the Lord's Day? Don't you look forward to Sundays? Mm. Today is the second Sunday of Advent as we anticipate the uh, celebration of the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus the Christ. In this month of December, we're having a series of Advent sermons. And what we want to see in every sermon this month of December is God's determination to be with us, God with us. That he is taking the initiative to pursue a relationship with us, even though we in our sinfulness and our sin have rebelled against him. That he is pursuing us rebels, wanting us to be in relationship with him, the very thing we were created for. We're calling this series in December, by one word, Emmanuel which means God with us. Join me, please, in Exodus chapter 25. And if you're familiar with your Old Testament, some of you may be wondering right now, Exodus 25, (laughs) Advent, isn't that one of those flyover passages in the Bible just talking about poles and curtains and altars and tables? What does a passage like that have to do with us here in the 21st century? Well, let's see what the Holy Spirit's going to do today as he shows us Emmanuel from this major portion of the second book of our Bibles, the book of Exodus. I believe that as we look at this portion of the book of Exodus, that we're going to find that it's about a whole lot more than than poles and curtains, altars and tables. It's a picture of where heaven and earth met. Have you found Exodus 25? Here's what we're going to do today. It's a rather long passage, and we're not going to cover all the bases, but we're going to basically answer, seek to answer three main questions. What was this tabernacle about? And then the second question is, well, what does that have to do with Jesus? And then the third question, what does that have to do with us? So what's the tabernacle? What's that have to do with Jesus? And then what does that have to do with us? This section, and it is a major portion in the book of Exodus, was called by Professor Vern Poitras. He called this section about the tabernacle like, a, like a, a visual poem. I like that. This passage is like a visual poem. It, it describes in such significant ways the very character of God as well as his determination to have a relationship with us as his sinful people needing redeemed. So that first question, what do we mean by tabernacle? Briefly, the tabernacle was a portable sanctuary. It was a tent. It was a tent that God had the people set up so that he could be with them. You're going to hear that phrase over and over today, with them or with us. Whose idea was the tabernacle anyway? You know, so many people in the world look at religion as this kind of level. And, and I think this is significant. So, so many people in the world say, well, all religions are equally valid because every religion has the same impetus. It's people's attempt to find God. And so if your religion is your attempt to find God, and your religion is your attempt to find God, and your religion is your attempt to find God, who's to say that one's better than the other? It's just every man has a right to find his own way to God. 
well, it's significant in this passage that this is not man's idea of how to find God. It's not man trying to climb up to God. It's God coming to us. That's a theme all through the Bible, and we see it here in the book of Exodus. Exodus does not describe the Israelites' attempt to find God, to somehow climb their way up to God. But the book of Exodus is clearly a description, a recounting of God coming to us. Whose idea was the tabernacle anyway? You opened Exodus 25? Look at verse 9. God says, well, I'll tell you what, let me start at 8 and then read 8 and 9. It says, God's speaking to Moses up on the mountain. And God says to Moses, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. And so God spoke to Moses, the leader of the people. He spoke to Moses up on that mountain, and he says, I want you to lead the people to make me a sanctuary. Make me a holy meeting place so that I can be in your midst. The Bible teaches us that the tabernacle was not man's idea. The tabernacle was God's idea. It was his initiative all along. It's God coming down to us. And I think if you look at the tabernacle, one thing or two things we want to learn from that is that the tabernacle shows us the, the imminence of God, that God is near us, or the way I like to think of it is God is nigh. That's an old word just meaning he's near. That in the tabernacle we see God nigh. He's near us. And if you try to put yourself in the sandals of the people who got the book of Exodus back there about 1400 B.C., where were they living? What were their homes like? They were living in, in tents. And so God says, make me a tent. I want you to make me a tent where I can come and dwell right there among my people. I want to be in a tent among their tents. I want to be in a tent among your tents. And so it shows us the imminence of God that he wants to be with us. But it also shows not only God most nigh, but God most high, the transcendence of God. Because even though God was dwelling, as it were, in a tent among the tents of his people, his tent was different. It was astonishingly beautiful, and it was amazingly costly. Where their tents might have been made out of goat hides or goat hair, his had very expensive materials, solid gold. A lot of this stuff was solid gold and beautiful colors with, with red and blues and purples and artistry. That the very fact of what his tent looked like communicated transcendence. Not only that, but there were these reminders that we're going to see as we go through this passage today. There were these reminders that God is holy. That he is holy and the people are not. So we're going to see these reminders of, of God being separate from his people, higher than his people. He's transcendent. I am holy and you are not. And you're not allowed to come here. You're not allowed to come into here. And so God most nigh, but also God most high. The tabernacle was God's initiative, not man's. Not only was it God's initiative, but it was God's design, not man's. Moses, the children of Israel, did not design the tabernacle. Did you know that? It wasn't their design. God gave the design to Moses. That's clear in the book of Exodus. 
And the author of Hebrews picks up on this. And he's showing us in the book of Hebrews that the tabernacle, as it were, was like, like a little model. It was a model that God showed Moses up on the mountain. And it's a model, as it were, of heaven itself. Listen, as we read from the book of Hebrews, this is chapter 8, verse 5. The old covenant priests were to serve, and I'm quoting here, serve a copy, a shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. So Moses is going to be held accountable by the God of the universe, saying, I'm showing you a model up here on the mountain, and I want you to lead the people to make it exactly, exactly as I show you. The author of Hebrews picks up in the next chapter, chapter 9, verse 24. He's speaking of Christ now as the great high priest, and he said, For Christ has entered, not into the holy places made with hands. He's referring back to the tabernacle and then the successive temples that followed, which are, get this, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. The tabernacle was a picture, a, a model, a representation of heaven. Now, it wouldn't be a full model, would it? It would not be a full description, but, but it's a picture. It's like a picture of heaven that Moses was allowed to see. Douglas Stewart, uh, another seminary professor, said the tabernacle was a symbolic representation or copy, a shadow of the realities of heaven, a relatively simple earthly reflection of God's actual dwelling place, designed to point to the greater and more eternal opportunity to live with God. Think about that, to live with God. So God took the initiative. He says, Moses, I want to come and live among my people. Now, if you and I had been Moses, we might have been tempted to say, God, are you sure you want to do that? Because we're a pretty rowdy bunch. You know, we're rebellious, and we're descendants of Adam and Eve who rebelled against you, God. Are you sure you want to come and live among us? God says, I want to be in the midst of my people. I want my tent to be right in the middle of their tents. And Moses, I want you to design my house. I want you to design my tent, my tabernacle, exactly like I show you. The structure itself, all the furniture inside. I want you to show the people exactly what I'm showing you. Build it exactly, Moses. And then God gave Moses, as it were, a list of materials to gather. And there were expensive pieces of cloth, expensive oil and perfumes. There was gold and, and bronze. There were all these expensive things God says gather from the people. Now, for those of you that are familiar with the book of Exodus, you might... Remember, uh, where did the people living out in the desert come up with all this gold and precious stones and fancy cloth? Well, remember the night they left Egypt? Remember that? That night they left Egypt, the 10th plague, where it broke the back, it broke the wills of Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and the people said, just go on, get out of here, take this, here, take this, here, take this. And the people were giving the Israelites all this stuff. God had a plan, didn't he? <laughs> he had a plan, and now that it's time to build the tabernacle, here the children of Israel are with all this stuff. Then maybe they had wondered, why did the Egyptians send us off with all this stuff? Well, because God would want it in the coming months to 
build his tabernacle. And God not only made this list of materials they were supposed to gather and supplied it ahead of time, but interestingly, God also gifted a couple of artisans to lead the construction, the building of the tabernacle and the construction of the furniture. A couple of men, Bezalel and Oholiab. It says in the Bible, chapter 31, verse 3, that the Holy Spirit empowered these men. Now, sometimes we wrongly assume that the Holy Spirit is a New Testament figure. Well, right here in the book of Exodus, it talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon these two men, where the Holy Spirit enabled them, empowered them to use these artistic gifts in ways that maybe they had never experienced before. Now, maybe we'll get to know these guys in heaven, but one thing I've wondered trying to think about what it would have been like to have been Bezalel or Ohilib, you know, what would it have been like to say, okay, okay, guys, listen, God told me up on the mountain, you've, you've got to make this exactly like he said, because God's going to come and, and dwell here. Can you imagine? I mean, do you feel any pressure? Don't goof up, guys. You better get this right. Because this is going to be God's dwelling among us. And yet these two men and those even who worked with them were reminded that the Holy Spirit would gift them. The Holy Spirit would empower them. And you know what? I was thinking about this. And I was thinking there are times when God calls you and me to certain ministries. I want you to reach out to that guy at work. I just want to minister to those hurting people. I want you to serve in this way or that way. And we look at it and we say, I, I just don't know if I can do that. I don't know if I'm able. That's right, you're not. You're not. But he is. And even as we look at one of these, quote, flyover passages of the Bible, we're reminded that we, have, we believers, we have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. And if the Lord calls us to a certain ministry, if he gives us a burden for a certain ministry, he will empower us in a way that he gets the credit. So what was a tabernacle like? Now, some of us have studied this in the past. We went through the book of Exodus here about eight years ago. But for some of you, this is fresh. Um, tell you what we're going to do. We're going to take a walk through the tabernacle complex, okay? We're going to walk through this. And um, if we're believers, we're like new covenant priests. The Bible calls us that. We're a new covenant priest. So we're allowed to come in through the blood of Jesus Christ. We're going to look at some illustrations, some artist renditions of the tabernacle and talk about it. But in Exodus 25, verse 8, God says, this is my dwelling place. I want to be in your midst. So if we could see the slide of the overall passage, the overall temple complex, you'll see that it was, it was separated from the camp. There was this, these are cloths on poles. So there was this movable tent, as it were, around the whole temple courtyard, tabernacle courtyard. It was about 150 feet long on the south and north, about 75 feet long on the west and the east. Uh, so if you're trying to picture that, uh, you're here in this room, our auditorium, it would be a bit narrower than our auditorium, but a bit longer. So you could fit, almost fit the whole courtyard here in this room. Not quite, it would be longer than this room. That gives you a little bit of feeling there. On the east side was this 30-foot wide opening, this gate that the priests could come in, people could come in and sacrifice their animals. And I think about that, you know, the Garden of Eden, its entrance was on the east. And one thing you see as you study the tabernacle is there's kind of these echoes of Eden. There's these echoes of Eden here and there. 
And even this entrance on the east is kind of a reminder of Eden and how it was a place that God came and met with Adam and Eve. First piece of furniture we see when we come into the courtyard is this big, um, this big bronze altar. It was really big. It was over seven feet, six inches each way, you know, uh, and it was about f- over four feet high. And this kind of a grill here, and animals would be slaughtered. And I realize we have children in the room, and this might sound gruesome, but people would bring lambs and other animals. And this is where they would be sacrificed. So there would be lots of noise, animals making noises, animals being killed, um, their bodies being cut up and put on this, and the the smoke would go up toward heaven. And, you know, we don't live in this type of culture, and this sounds really gross to us. Sounds kind of gruesome, doesn't it? And it was. And I think about that sometimes, even as families. Some of you have kids at home, and even as families, when the dad might go out to the flock and pick one of the lambs, and one of the sons says, Dad, what, what are you doing with the lamb? Well, we're take, we're, son, we're taking it to sacrifice. But Dad, I, I like that lamb. Dad, do you have to take that lamb? Yes, son. And it was sad. There's a certain ugliness to sacrifice because sin is ugly. It's supposed to be ugly. And even the, the killing of the animal, the blood sacrifice was a reminder that sin is costly. Sin costs life. What did God tell Adam? When you eat of this tree, you will surely die. And even the death of these animals is but a mere temporary substitute. You're going to prolong your life by killing this animal. It's going to die in your place. But there are these bloody sacrifices here in this altar. And, and we progress further in then to the courtyard and The next piece of furniture we come is this big basin. It's a bronze basin. And it was here that the priests were to wash before they entered the tabernacle itself. Now you say, well, boy, that's nice that that was there because they would have been all bloody and they needed to wash that off. That's true. There was a functional component to that, a functional reasoning for that, where they needed to wash the blood off after killing and sacrificing the animal. But there was also a ceremonial aspect to that, that even before they entered the tabernacle, they had to wash as a symbol that, that we are unclean, we, we are sinners, and, and we need to be washed to enter into the very presence of God. And so that bronze basin was there. And now we enter the tabernacle itself. The tabernacle was made up of layers, layers of uh, curtains, as it were. On the inside would have been uh, the prettiest. It would have been linen. And then there was a goat hair layer. And then a layer of uh, goat skins dyed red. Probably that red would have been a reminder to the people that it was only through death, it was only through the death of these animals that people can have fellowship with God, that sin had to be paid for. And then the outside wouldn't have been that pretty, but it would have been functional. Is It was made out of sea cow hides, which would have been from the Red Sea. Um, They would have made it waterproof on those occasions when it did rain. And so there are all these layers. And and if we could go through the curtain, only the priests could go in there. And you could see that this tabernacle had two main rooms. There's this outer room, the first room, and it would be 30 feet long, 15 feet wide, and 15 feet high. And it was supported by these beams of acacia wood with poles that were covered with gold. 
So it would have been very beautiful inside. All this gold in here and the beautiful linen curtain on the inside reflecting back almost as the sky itself, the heavens themselves. And as we enter in there, we see on the left the lampstand. The lampstand. It was made out of solid gold, about 75 pounds of solid gold. And as you look at this, it kind of reminds you of a tree, doesn't it? That's very intentional. And the blossoms reminded the people of almond tree blossoms. And uh, this would be a reminder of Eden too, wouldn't it? That in the Garden of Eden was the tree of life. And this light would have been a reminder of what was lost. An echo again of Eden. That Eden was lost because of man's sin. Now God's taking the initiative to remind us of what was lost, but also what can be regained here in this lampstand. By the way, this is just a history lesson. You know, sometimes we, we, we look back at the old times and we assume certain things took place before they did. The people didn't have candles back then. Those weren't invented for centuries. The, the lamps they had back then would have been these shallow dishes and they would put olive oil in there and a little wick of linen or whatever and those would light up the room. And so as the priest worked there in this room, the outer room called the holy place, uh, this lamp would have lit up that room and all the gold and everything reflecting in there, it just would have been breathtaking that the priests probably went in there with a certain sense of awe that we're going into this holy place. It's hard to think of the lamp too without, not, without looking forward and seeing Christ as the light of the world, isn't it? We go back to the interior picture of the tabernacle. This is on the left. On the right, there's this little table. It's not real big, but on this table were two, or excuse me, were 12 flat loaves of bread. It's called the, the, the table of the bread of presence. And, and here again, we need to stand in the sandals of the people of the ancient Near East where meals back then had, if you ate a meal with someone, that was a sign of friendship, a uh, sign of loyalty. And it's as if God saying to the people of Israel, I, I want to sit down and have a meal with you. I, wanna, I want us to be on friendly terms. I want us to have a covenant relationship. So this bread that was there, 12 loaves, 12 tribes, uh, these 12 loaves of bread were a reminder that God wants us in his presence. He wants to, as it were, sit at table and have fellowship with us, have a meal with us, a reminder and and again, my mind keeps reflecting back to Christ saying, I'm the bread of life. Back to the interior of their tabernacle again, we see in front of us this little altar of incense. It wasn't real big across, like a foot and a half each direction. And here would be perfumes burned and there would be a sweet smell in the tabernacle. And back to the uh, picture of the inside again, this is really significant. I told you there were two rooms. This outer room was the twice as big as the back room. This was called the holy place. This second room was known as the holy of holies. Like if the outer room was holy, well then this one's really holy. It's the holy of holies. And separating the two rooms was this big, thick curtain. And the curtain was a beautiful curtain. And interestingly, woven into that fabric were pictures of cherubim, those guardian angels as it were, do you remember when Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden and God says, I don't want them coming in here anymore. I don't want them coming in here and eating of the tree of life and their sinful condition. And so what did God set at the gate of the Garden of Eden to guard them from re-entering? Cherubim, bearing swords. And right here in the curtain are these cherubim woven in. And, 
that reminder that God is a holy God and sinners can't just march into my presence without somehow me inviting them in and taking care of that sin that separates us. And so this curtain was just a reminder of God is a holy God. And you can't just come marching into my presence without sacrifice, appropriate sacrifice being made. Now, this is just a side note, but some of you kids remember what happened the day Jesus died on the cross? What happened? That's right, the curtain tore. That's one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. <laughs> that when Jesus died on the cross, God is where reached out his hands. And he took this curtain in the temple now, years later, and he ripped it from top to bottom. And he said, sacrifice made, mission accomplished. Come in through the blood of my son, Jesus Christ, my lamb, the lamb of God. Yeah, sorry, I'm getting sidetracked. <laughs> Inside that back room, there was one piece of furniture. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And it was gold. Inside were two tablets of stone, uh, the, the Ten Commandments, one copy for God, as it were, and one copy for the Israelites. Inside these two tablets, a picture of, of God's requirements that you need to obey me, you need to be holy, and yet we know that we often disobey. And on the top, on the top is this solid gold plate. It was sometimes called the mercy seat or the place of atonement. That back room, that holy of holies, it was, it was vacated by human beings for 364 days a year. There were no humans back there for 364 days. But one day of the year, one day of the year, the day of atonement, the high priest could go back there. But he could go back there only after he went through these washings and these sacrifices. It was a sobering time where the high priest said, it's, it's the day of atonement. And I, I get to, I, I need to go back to the Holy of Holies. And how he would be sobered by that reality of going into the presence of a holy God. And, and how soul gripping that would be. And the washings and the sacrifices. And then he'd go back and he'd take some blood. And he would sprinkle it on this mercy seat. And God says, I will come and I will meet with you there. These are cherubim. He's, these are like guardian angels again, made out of solid gold. And God's glory would come down and meet with the high priest there above this mercy seat. So when God looked down at his commandments, realizing that his, his people had broken them, he was looking through the sacrifice. He was looking through the mercy that he had shown, the grace that he had shown through the sacrifice. Exodus 25, verse 22 says, God says to Moses, he says, here, there, excuse me, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. The ark of the covenant was, as it were, God's throne. This back room would be like his throne room, and that was his throne. It's interesting, at the end of chapter 29 in Exodus, there's two verses, uh, Exodus 29, 45 and 46, God says, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I may dwell among them. I am the Lord their God, that I may dwell among them. So the tabernacle was seen as a place where God would come 
and be with his people. God most nigh, but also God most high. That he is both imminent and transcendent. All of that just leads us to our next major question, and that is, what does all this have to do with Jesus? Some of you remember that night of the resurrection. That night, that evening of the resurrection, Jesus shows up and he's walking with two of his disciples that are uh, on their way to the village of Emmaus. And Jesus has a walking Bible study. Do some of you remember what Luke records for us about that Bible study? He says, beginning with, some of you said it, beginning with Moses and the prophets, Jesus explained to them everything the Old Testament was about. Now, when it says he began with Moses, what's he referring to, beginning with Moses? What books of the Bible did Moses write? Genesis? Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, beginning with Moses, I firmly believe that that night as they walked along that trail to Emmaus, that part of that Bible study was Jesus explaining the book of Exodus. Jesus explaining how the book of Exodus pointed to him. And maybe Jesus even talked some about the tabernacle. You know... I told Moses back there 1,400 years ago exactly how to design the tabernacle and what it was supposed to picture. It was pointing to me. A hopeful analogy to me, we must read our Old Testament through New Testament glasses. If we don't do that, we're going to miss so much. I picture this, this is my simple way of explaining things, as if God is shining a light on his son Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is, is in the limelight of his Father. And as the Father shines the light onto his Son, Jesus Christ, it's as if Jesus is casting a shadow back into the Old Testament. And we read the Old Testament and we say, oh, oh, I see. I see now how that is a shadow of Christ. That's, that's a reflection, a shadow of Christ. And even as we read the tabernacle, we say, oh, I see how that pointed forward to Christ. Christ is casting his shadow back into the Old Testament. There are statements in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that remind us that the tabernacle actually pointed toward Jesus. And one of the obvious ones that uh, Pastor Mark's going to share here in a couple weeks is Matthew 1, where, where it was said that Jesus' name would be Emmanuel, God with us. And here the tabernacle was Emmanuel. The tabernacle was a taste of that, God with us. But one day the Messiah himself would come and one of his names would be the God with us one. Jesus made explicit statements himself. Do you remember when, when the opposition started to heat up against Jesus toward the end of his ministry? He said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And people thought he was talking about the building that Herod had built a generation before. What was Jesus referring to? He wasn't talking about that edifice there in the city of Jerusalem. He was talking about his own body. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And Jesus was clearly saying that that temple was merely a picture of him. But there's more, isn't there? 
The Apostle John, when he wrote his gospel, he had this prologue. He had this introductory statement about Jesus Christ. And it is significant what he says in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, John wrote there, And the Word became flesh, and our English translations have, And dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And that phrase in the original, in the Greek, dwelt among us, is the verbal form of tabernacle. And the Holy Spirit led the Apostle John to choose that word, to choose that word to describe the coming of Jesus Christ. He says, the eternal God, the Word, Jesus Christ, came and He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. And the people that knew their Bibles, knew their Old Testaments, were supposed to sit up and say, Oh, that's what that was about. That God became flesh in the person of Jesus Christ, and He came to tabernacle among us. The tabernacle merely foreshadowed Christ Himself. You know how Moses, excuse me, Aaron would go into that Holy of Holies and God's glory would come down? John writes in John 1, we, we have seen His glory. I think about that. How the glory that took the breath away of the Israelites when they saw the Shekinah, they saw the glory of God coming down over the tabernacle, that same one, that same glorious one, was now walking the streets of Jerusalem. We've seen His glory. The glory of the one and only. He's come to explain the Father to us. He's, came to, he's come to show us God. He's God revealed in human flesh. We, we've seen His glory. Eternity invaded time in the person of Jesus Christ. Not only do we see the glory of Jesus Christ, but we also are reminded that He is the Lamb of God. John the Baptist saw Jesus Christ walking one day, and he says to everyone, he says, Look, the Lamb of God, or, or we could paraphrase him saying, the Lamb provided by God. That we take our lambs, we take our lambs to sacrifice, but this is the Lamb that God Himself is providing. Look, the Lamb of God. And we can't think of the tabernacle without realizing that it pointed to Jesus Christ. And not only the beauty, the glory of Christ, but also that Jesus Christ is that sacrifice Lamb. He is the Lamb of God. That we needed a perfect sacrifice. That those Old Testament sacrifices, the, listen friends, hundreds of thousands of animals that died at the tabernacle and at the succeeding temples. The hundreds of thousands, the rivers of blood could not finally atone for the sins of one sinner. It covered them for a while. But there had to be an ultimate sacrifice. There had to be a perfect sacrifice. One that would not merely temporarily cover the sins of the people, but would remove it, take it away, cancel its debt. And God himself had to supply the only sacrifice that would work. 
He is the Lamb of God. And we read the tabernacle through our New Testament eyes and we see that Christ is the sacrifice Lamb. He is the Lamb provided by God. And now we have access to God. God is taking the initiative. God is coming to us. You say, oh, God wouldn't want to be around me. I'm a sinner. He does want to be with you. He wants you to be with him. And he has gone to, how can we say it in human terms? <coughs> he has gone to great pain. He has gone to great sacrifice to remove that wedge of sin between you and him. It cost him his son, Jesus Christ. And now if we are covered with the blood of Jesus Christ, what does the author of Hebrews say? This is Hebrews chapter 10. <coughs> In Hebrews chapter 10, beginning of verse 19, it says, Therefore, brothers... Since we have confidence, listen, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. We say, I am not worthy. No, you're not. Neither am I. But Jesus Christ is. And he's died in our place. And as a sacrifice, Lamb of God, Jesus Christ died in our, our place. We're covered over with the blood of Jesus Christ. And the Father looks at us and he sees us as forgiven sinners. He sees us as pardoned sinners because of the cost of his son's blood. And he says, come in. He tore the curtain, my friends. That should boggle our minds. That should stir our hearts. That God the Father tore the curtain when he crushed his son. And he says to us, come in. Draw me. It's his initiative. He came seeking us. What does the tabernacle have to do with us? Well, a couple of brief comments here. Christ, Jesus Christ, is the personification of the tabernacle. He is the one who cast a shadow back that we know as the tabernacle. But the Bible is clear with statements that we believers are in Christ. We are in him. book of Ephesians repeats this phrase, this prepositional phrase over and over, that we are in him, we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are his tabernacle. We are his temple. The author of the, uh, 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul, said this in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, do you not know that you, plural, for you southerners, y'all, do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you all are that temple. That we are the temple of God. We, the church, are the dwelling place of God. That he has sent his spirit among us. And as the spirit lives among us, we are the holy temple of God. Now, we don't have time to discuss this fully. But let me mention several things that I think we as the church need to keep in mind. Realizing who we are, realizing whose we are, should impact our worship. 
it is so easy to slide into the demeanor of worship that worship's about making me feel better about myself. Could we just sing songs that make me feel better about myself? Could we just hear readings that make me feel better about myself? That's not tabernacle enough. That's not temple enough. That worship is God meeting with us. And our worship, and I praise God for Marcos and others who serve us and leading us in worship, I often say to them, I pray for you, not only that you would be our worship leaders, but that you would be our lead worshipers. There's a difference. You'd be our lead worshipers. You model for us what it means to worship Him. That we come into the presence of God when we gather as a church and our focus is God is meeting with us. And in the person of the Holy Spirit, working in our hearts, binding us together, drawing our attention to Christ, He's meeting with us. That our worship is godly. That we're telling God how much we admire Him. We tell Him how much we appreciate Him. That He is the audience of one. We're not the audience. He's the audience. It's, a, it's an audience of one. Realizing that we are the temple, we are the tabernacle, impacts our worship, doesn't it? It impacts our mission. What are we about as a church? What are we about? What is our purpose? What is our mission? I keep thinking in my mind about what Peter wrote in 1 Peter 2.9. He says, but you are a chosen race. Listen, he says, you, the church, are a royal priesthood. A royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession. Here it is, that. He's going to tell us why. He's going to give us our mission. That. You may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That God has saved us and he's united us around his son Jesus Christ. He's made us his people. He's made us the royal priesthood. Why? So that we could tell everyone, can I tell you about him? Can I tell you about the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his wonderful light? Our mission, my Christian friends, is to tell people of the excellencies of our God and Savior. It impacts our worship. It impacts our mission. It impacts how we function. Now, I might step on some American toes here, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> The church is not a democracy. Is that hard for us Americans to hear? The church is not a democracy. Thankfully, I don't hear it here at CCC very much, but I, I have heard it where people say, look, it's my church, and that's not the way I want it to be. My church, I have, I have the same right as the next guy. So, it's not your church. It's not my church. It's not the pastor's church. I tell people, I, sometimes because I've been here so long, people say, you know, Christ Covenant, Larry's church, and I have the same response every time. Glad I can quote it for you. It wasn't my blood. Don't you dare attach my name to this church as if somehow I have claim on it. It's not my church. It wasn't my blood. I don't care if I'm here for 80 years. It wasn't my blood, and it wasn't yours either. The church is not a democracy. The church is a monarchy. King Jesus, King Jesus rules over our church. And we must always 
we must always be going back to him, saying, what do you want us to know? What do you want us to feel? What do you want us to do? Oh, Paul said it in such strong language, didn't he, in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, you are the temple of God. And you, you better not lay any foundation other than one that's already been laid. And that's the foundation of Christ Jesus himself. And this church, until we hear the trumpet, my friends, this church must be all about Jesus Christ, that we lay no other foundation. Paul says it in such strong terms. He says, if you destroy the temple of God, God's going to destroy you. Seeing ourselves as the temple of God, the tabernacle of God, says everything about how we function. But it's his church. What is he telling us? How does he want us to live? How does he want us to function? Briefly, friends, it's interesting in 1 Corinthians how there's not only you plural are the temple of God, but when you get to chapter 6, there's a you singular too. In chapter 6, it says, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside his body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or, you do, not, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, who you have from God? You're not your own. You've been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Again, strong language, but it puts sin in a different perspective, doesn't it? Especially sexual sins, where it's so easy to say, well, you know, it's not that big a deal. I almost feel like paraphrasing Paul here with saying something like, are you out of your mind? I mean, you individually as a Christian are the temple of God. You're the tabernacle of God. He's put your Holy, he put his Holy Spirit within you. God dwells in you in the person of the Holy Spirit. Why would you use your body that belongs to him that he indwells in some sort of sexually immoral, some sort of sinful way? Remembering whose we are, remembering what we are, we're the temple of God, not only corporately as the church, but individually as Christians, affects, shapes, impacts our view of sin, doesn't it? You get to the end of the book of Exodus, and in chapter 40 it says, So Moses finished the work. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle, and Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled over it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It was so, so awesome. It was so overwhelming that Moses couldn't enter. God's glory came down. God's glory came down. God with us, Emmanuel. That's the story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. The story of redemption from Genesis to Revelation. Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God and not fulfill their image-bearing responsibilities. God had every right to just dismiss the whole situation. But he didn't, did he? He took the initiative. God took the initiative and says, I want to be with my people. I want my people to be with me. And so he did everything that was necessary to remove that barrier of sin. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, Emmanuel, in the person of Jesus Christ. You and I were made to be in relationship with God. We're image bearers. We were made to be in relationship with God. 
Sin is that wedge that separates us. Adam and Eve hid from God. God expelled them from the garden. And yet God did not leave it there. He took initiative to come and bridge that gap. The tabernacle pictures that. That is but a shadow of Jesus Christ who came as that glorious one. The church is a reminder of God dwelling with us as his people. But friends, even that, even today, we have this taste of, of glory here in the context of the church, the temple of God. But even what we enjoy now as being the people of God is but a taste of what is coming. I said from Genesis to Revelation, and you get to chapter 21 and the last Sunday of our Advent series, Jake's going to lead us through this glorious passage in Revelation 21. Let me just whet your appetites today. Where John writes there at the very end of the Bible, he says, And I heard a voice in the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling, of, dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 